Imagine a world where men stepped up and answered God's call to reach their full potential. Imagine a world where men put their faith and trust in God unwaveringly and without qualification. Imagine a world where men lived out God's purpose for them in everything they do. It's not my credit to take explores the awe and wonder of how God shows up in the lives of strong, principled Christian men from all walks of life. Get ready to laugh, to cry, and to be transformed. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Slover, faithful husband, loving father, loyal friend, and unapologetically Christian. Welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Cliff, what's going on? Slover, what's happening? <laughs> it's great to see you. Uh, my guest today is the one and only Dr. Mark Clifford. I first met Mark, I call him Cliff. So if you listening hear me say Mark or Cliff, it's one and the same person. But he and I first met while working at Grand Canyon University in Phoenix, Arizona, where he was an assistant professor and later assistant dean in the Colangelo College of Business. He's also a veteran of the United States Air Force, where he most recently served as squadron commander of the 607 Material Maintenance Squadron. He also holds a PhD in sport and fitness administration and management. Today, Mark is the chief of staff, chief of staff at Position Sports and also the executive director of the Dream Foundation, which is a really cool organization established to provide opportunities and access to underrepresented, underrepresented groups within the sports industry through education, access to industry professionals, mentorship and guidance. Over the years, Mark and I have developed a genuine friendship that was born out of mutual respect and ad admiration for one another. He and I are the epitome of brothers from another mother. He's married to his wife, Elise, for 25 years, and they have, they have two sons, Caleb and Jaden. Cliff, welcome to It's Not My Credit to Take. Thanks for having me. That was actually a really good introduction. I didn't. Half of that's true. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I figured in you preparing for this conversation that w we will have plenty of moments of, of banter back and forth and, and levity. I, I, and you and I talked about it over the years that we really are the epitome of brothers from another mother. And if you're not watching this, it's really difficult to understand why that's somewhat funny. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm tall and ball-headed, uh, ball and you're tall and not ball-headed. Uh, well, it's hard. It's hard to distinguish. It's like, hey, is that Clifford or slowing up the steps? It's hard to. It's hard to tell, man. It really is difficult to tell. So, for those of you listening on Apple and Spotify, check out. Uh, it's not my credit to take on YouTube. So, Cliff, tell us about your background and how you ended up where you are in your life. Uh, yeah, the, actually, it's a, it's a long background, um, and a lot of the credits to my father. So uh, I'm born to a uh, my dad, who's the fourth black general officer in the Air Force, um, and a mother who's an immigrant from uh, the Philippines. And so um, they were previously married and, and had my brother and I were a little bit older, and then we both have a half-brother and half-sister. And uh, I grew up with my dad not knowing what it meant to be a general officer in the military. It was just a dad, right? Um, there was a lot of things that we did in and around the house and grew up a lot of people in and around the house as he hosted a lot. And then we moved to Michigan um, where he worked for General Motors. And so, uh, you know, growing up with a dad that's very strict and a mother that's very strict uh, in a Catholic household, it was um, 
finding ways, my brother and I found ways to um, have a good time and do things that got us in trouble. Uh, and, and I'm the youngest one, so I let the older one do it, get in trouble, and then I figure out how I can get away with some stuff and uh, let him <laughs> kind of be the, the guy that take the trials, right? Uh, even to this day, he's still a little bit of a goofball, more so than I am. Um, but then has really fallen into uh, fallen to his faith and and, and found Christ doing some things in his life that are deviated from mine. But from what I say, you know, we grew up a certain way. Now it's like we're done we're past a little bit. But uh, yeah, and then myself, you know, I entered the military. We moved to Michigan. Uh, at, well, we moved from Michigan to California. Met my wife. Uh, didn't know she was my wife at the time, but we met in high school. Um, dated our senior year, kind of figured out that uh, I, I better do something. Um, quit around and go do something about it. And uh, we started, I went to the Air Force Academy and, and entered the Air Force myself. And that's where I really realized what it meant to um, what my what my father did and appreciate what he did. Uh, the fact that he was a trailblazer in the Air Force for people that look like me, uh, but not knowing that and didn't really know how to celebrate that as a younger person. And so I spent my career on multiple jobs throughout the military, um, traveled the world, loved it. Um, and now it's, I'm in the second phase of my life, really the third, because my second phase was after retiring from the Air Force, coming to Grand Canyon University. And I've been teaching for a handful of years, even before getting to GCU, um, which I enjoy. I enjoy teaching. I've been around students. And then, you know, what really happened was uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and some of these other monumental things have hit the news in terms of social injustice, social turmoil. Uh, and, and I need to find my voice. And I tried to do that at the university and, and it wasn't as powerful or impactful that I wanted it to be. And so now I'm doing the work that I'm doing, which is what you outlined with the Dream Foundation, um, doing some of the same work with the GCU teaching and um, mentoring students in the sports industry who are interested. But now it's kind of it's hyper focused on black and brown students who are really underserved you know hbcus historical black college universities if you if you do the history and look at the the lack of funding thereof um it's it's a needed space and so that's that's what i found myself and that's what i continue to do now that was one of the questions i had for you the core program at the dream foundation is called the dream program and it's focused on supporting students from as you mentioned historically black colleges and universities it it's an awesome purpose what is your what is your day to day work look like? Sort of a day in the life of Mark Clifford. Uh, it's everything's different, um, which which I enjoy. It's we turned this into a foundation last year. It was a lot of the work that I did was getting the the dream program into a foundation, um, but continually working and pushing for the classroom work. And so we run two classes simultaneous with. Uh, college semesters of fall and the spring. And so throughout fall and the spring, a lot of my time and effort is just like preparing class and reaching out throughout the network in the sports industry to find high level executives or even some lower level folks at the director management level that work in the business of sports so they can talk to students about what it takes to get there, what some barriers are, what some of the challenges are, and how to overcome some of those challenges. Um, so a lot of that work is done in terms of teaching the class, but it's everything else to running a business and the financial piece to that. There's 
um, outreach, you know, you've got to find the right guest speakers. There's outreach to find sponsors and fundraisers. There's outreach to increase and, and create a, an advisory board that supports uh, the mission of the foundation. So there's all these other things that kind of pile up uh, on my to-do list every single day and every single week. And it, it changes daily. And you can be going one direction, get pulled into something else, because I do also serve as a chief of staff of positions, which, for the, which is an event marketing company, event operations company. Uh, and so there's day-to-day tasks that kind of pull me into that as well. So never you're going to get, yeah, I almost sound like Forrest Gump right there. Um, but you never know, you know, some days <laughs> may, may take, a, take a left turn. You're not expecting any of this, and it's just one of those things you just ebb and flow with. You mentioned just a, a few moments ago that the Dream Foundation serves underserved, underrepresented uh, persons of color. And you also talked about really finding your voice. What's what's your message around the the topics of you know George Floyd and 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 others that you would you would want really I guess to be more, uh, adopted by really mainstream America in, in terms of in terms of tolerance and treating people with dignity and respect what would your messaging be or what is it uh, yeah I think that it, it's about first and identifying that there has been a history of challenges of people of color in this country it's it's not new um, just the fact that it was on TV for the last couple of years doesn't mean it's a new thing for black community and brown community uh, and what's understanding the history being empathetic uh, but at the same time working together with through love and support um, because that's really what it boils down to I mean you talked about friendship at the beginning between you and I I mean that's what it boils down to is having open honest conversations about what some of the challenges are but then don't sit and complain about it. let's find a solution and help propel and uplift others so that they're impactful also be intentional about the work that you do um, and do it for the right purpose. So let's not do it to put our name on the board and say, we're trying to do something. Let's actually do it. And so my, my, my message is really hey, empathize, understand the history and where we're going, but you know, there's roadblocks, but for the students that I talk with, it's about how do you overcome those roadblocks? Don't, don't let, you know, people hold you down, find ways to get in through and around uh, to meet your goals and expectations and things that you want to do. Yeah. So you and I became fast friends when we met. And one of the things that I, I, I chat with my kids about, I chat with my students about is that personalities don't always have to match, but what connects people or disconnects people really comes down to core values. And it, they don't have, always have to be identical, but they're more similar than not. With that said, you, you and I look different and I don't know, I don't know what it's like to be a person of color. And so whenever you, whenever you say empathize, I conceptually understand what that is, but not having ever experienced what you've experienced, I, I, I find that somewhat challenging knowing that what would what advice could you offer to me or any other non-person of color to really try to find a way to put ourselves in the shoes of a person of color in contemporary America? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. I think that's really difficult to do and really 
conceptualize, right? You almost have to conceptualize what that means, right? It's hard to ask you and say, hey, Ed, have you ever been in an elevator? And when you walked in that elevator, people clenched their purse or moved away from you or saying walking down the street or said subtle things about, oh, he doesn't look like us. Like you'll never, right? You're you're in a position where you probably will never have that same experience that I've had. And those are just yeah. minor things that uh, I mentioned. And it's like, um, but when I bring that to you and I have that conversation with you, it's like, uh, I, I guess it's just opening up your mind and your heart to kind of understand what that could really mean. What that really means, you know, for, for you as a white male, um, and then how you would treat others outside. Of it. And again, right. You're an open dude. Um, you walk with Christ. You've got strong moral values. I don't, I don't see, like, I never looked at Ed and be like, oh man, he doesn't like me because I'm a black dude that, that never come across. My mind. But it's just more of like, how do you understand? Like, this is something that has affected this community for long before a George Floyd incident happened. Yeah. How can I then be an ally, supporter, partner of this or of people of color. And again, it's, I think I, I go back and forth and I, you know, I'm challenging myself too, because it's, I think we're right now in a society where we're hypersensitive about stuff. Um, it's funny. And I say that because I had a conversation with somebody. Um, we we're talking to an organization looking for partnership. Um, I won't mention the company name, but what one of their, our mission is to increase black content for black television. And a white friend of mine said, can you explain that to me? Because if I were to say I'm creating and looking for more white content for a white channel, like get shot. And I was like, hundred percent. I said, you have to realize that in our, and I'm not, you know, I'm generalizing here in the black community. Um, you see mainstream TV. Yes, it has people of color in it and there's a mix, but it's still producers and white content folks, just white writers. Everything is from that perspective. And then you input a person to say, OK, now you're my cultural guy. No, that's not. So, so when we think about there's never really been a decade slew of channels that are written, produced. Um, acted, you name it, by people of and that's why it's important to them because there's an audience of people that want to see that more so than they want to see a ABC channel story. Now that's very extreme, but kind of to your point, I think I kind of ran in circles, but you, know, I think you kind of get where I was going with that. I, I do. One of the one of the conversations I've had with my daughter on so. I should say similar conversation that we've had multiple times that her best friend since first grade is uh, a person of color. Her, her name's Ashley. She's, she, she's just wonderful. And one of the, one of the things as part of the conversation I've had with my daughter is you don't need to defend or justify to anyone else because Jocelyn, my daughter has been, has been called racist before with, and these other people that are calling her that have no idea that her best friend forever has been a person of color. And, and I'm, I'm looking for some, for some guidance and coaching from you on this one, because my, my commentary has been, you don't, you don't need to justify yourself to 
people who are making ignorant comments. And if for no other reason, and I, and she doesn't know this terminology, but if for no other reason to not engage in anything resembling virtue signaling, because that's its own, that's its own thing. And that's just, it just irks me when, when people go out of their way to signal their virtue, I know where I'm directing her to say, Hey, look, you don't need to defend it. Be who you are, be your authentic self and be friends with whoever you want to be friends with is, am I close to the target on that one from your perspective? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, it's almost like you almost have to take, take it back and go, Jocelyn, why do you think they're calling you racist? Like what's prompting that from these individuals? I agree with you. There's no need to explain yourself, but it's, you know, if it's an incident versus just her overall mannerisms, actions in and around the school or wherever that situation may be. Those are probably at least worth figuring out and delineating because if it's an action, then that's something to address versus just like I'm friends who I want to be friends with. And I agree with that. I don't think there's any way of just, I grew up in white suburban areas. Like all my friends were white and like, but I think they didn't never understood my walk in my shoes. It's, and so I would just say to her that it's like you said, no need to explain. You you become friends with people you become friends with. You love the people that you want to love. Um, and then you just support those friends and those people that you love and surround you. Um, and I think, right, she'll be fine and she'll work her way through some of those name calling or, you know, whatever that situation prompted those folks to say that to her. Because, uh, you know, especially if they're younger, I don't even think they know what racism means. To be right. honest, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, agreed. So you talked about growing up in a Catholic household that you had a strict mother and father. Was that what brought you to Christ, or did you have any other experiences along the way that were transformative in that regard? No, you know, that was it. I mean, it was for me. It was our our family. That, that's who we were, um, and so we, you know, we grew up going to Catholic mass and, um, and so that was really the family value. My, my mom and my dad both were Catholic. And so that's what drove us and my family and what drove me to, um, learn and understand and have my own way of celebrating and praying, um, and showing my faith. And when I got to college, um, I had a decision to make of, if I wanted to continue to go to Catholic mass or choose my own path, I decided to choose my own path and choose my own way. Um, and that was, you know, it was just a choice that I made. And it's, I think my walk is, is mine. It's unique to me, the way that I want to celebrate and support and love and, um, and show my faith has just been, it's not outwardly. It's just, it's just who I am. Um, and I, you know, it works for me and works for my family and, um, you know, I think that's just, that's where I stand. So when you talk about God, what do you talk about? Uh, you know, that's, yeah. it's an interesting question. question. I, I had that posed to me by my, my wife's uncle just recently. It's like, when you talk about God, what do you talk about? It's like, oh my gosh. Well, so I'll go. <laughs> and, and then I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. You know, w- when I talk about God, I, I, 
I, I because I'm not strong with scripture yet, I tend not to defer to scripture, even though I understand the foundational princi- principles you know outlined in the Bible. I when I talk about God or when I talk about Jesus, for me it's it's literally inspiration. It's because if you go, if you look at the the Latin definition of uh, inspire, it's inspirare. It means to breathe into. So when I talk about it, it really is just like from the inside out, and it's really hard to put words to. It's almost like trying to drink coffee with a fork. It's really difficult. Uh, I tend to, in addition to not being strong with scripture, I tend to not like certain platitudes associated like well we're we're all sinners i mean that i don't know how much value that adds to the conversation or or, you know it's all part of god's plan i'm not entirely sure how much value that adds to that so you know for me it's just seeing awe and wonder in in things every single day and that's how i connect the dots at least for me so now now that i went it's it's your turn (laughs) I'd say um, you answered that really well. I, I ditto. Um, no, I think it's similar to the same for me. It, it is. Uh, you don't. I'm not very strong with scripture. My brother is. He's quick to to hit me with this. You know, um, something out of the Bible, a scripture that talks to him, and he's he's really good with that. I, I am not. I'm the opposite of that. Uh, but I'm the same. I, I'm very. And that was a good way of putting it. Like inspirational, motivational. I do believe that there's a plan. Uh, and I do believe that it's guided by God and Jesus. And I do believe, um, you know, when I, when I talk about putting faith in things that I'm, I feel strongly about, like I do feel that I have the support of, of God. Um, you know, my way of, of talking and communicating and praying, and I do that through my grandmother who has passed a while ago, like who I pray to um, for for protection, support, and love, because I believe that she's in heaven sitting next to God. So I, there's ways that I do that internally, um, but but that's a great way of putting it. I, I do think it's inspirational. I do talk, um, when I do, I don't do it often, but when I do, like, yeah, it's it's that's a good way of putting it, inspiration. Look at you, Eddie, giving me answers. I like it. Well, well, every now and again, I mean, the, the, the hamster wheel, you know, in between the ears goes round and round from time to time. Um, yeah. Has your faith in God ever wavered? No, I, I, I just think I've taken, I've taken a step back from outwardly and going to church every Sunday and like I've taken a step back, but I've never wavered in my faith in him. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, even from a military standpoint, um, a lot of, a lot of leaders would say, you know, God, family, country, God, country, family, God, God was always first. Um, from a military standpoint, from a very structured institution, I was like, man, are we allowed to even say that? But yeah, like, why not? That's who that person was. So I got more and more comfortable with the blessings and saying that out loud as when I got to the rank where I was the person in charge or the, the person in front of the group, um, you're giving giving thanks to God for the support and love and especially, um, you know, watching over our, our military members, especially during time of war, because I was serving during Iraq and Afghanistan war. So I think there's um, a, never a time I, 
I wavered. I was just maybe a step back. From what I know of you, you've always been someone that's sh shown up to answer the call of God's potential, whether it's as a husband, father, service uh, man, service person. I don't know what the nomenclature is today in, in the Air Force. Certainly teacher, um, business person. What's been what's been the driving force for you to step up and answer the call? Does that go back to your your upbringing? Is it military combination? I think it's a combination of all of the above. I think it's um, as we grow older, I think we try to figure out what we're good at. Um, I think then we want to really exploit and leverage that. And so you go to the business mindset. How do you exploit and leverage that to make money? You go, what can I be really good at so that I can show my love and support for my family and grow family? Um, from a military standpoint, it's I good at to make sure that the mission is complete. And so for me, I think it's a combination of all of the above of figuring out what you're really good at. And so I've been really, be, in my opinion, um, as I think through my career and where I am today, I think, you know, the time at GCU and then stepping away to now. Not to say I, I've ever really felt hamstrung by the military, but I definitely from a very conservative institution, there's certain things you can and can't do. Um, and I felt like maybe I wasn't 100% my authentic self because I had to be careful um, in certain areas. And there's certain because of, from a political standpoint, from a rank standpoint, um, from a race standpoint. Uh, now I feel like I have a, a voice where I can continue to do the work that I think I'm here to do, which is support others and uplift others. In the military, part of that structure is if you donate, you're uplifting others. It's not about mm -hmm. achieving a rank and leaving everybody behind you. It's about achieving the rank and how do you uplift everybody else to also do their There's enough for everybody. Um, and I have that same mentality now, with whether it's with students or people in my life, it's how do I uplift others? And so um, that's where, you know, that's where I think I've evolved over my course of my life to this point. Got it. Got it. So switching gears just a little bit. Last fall, I had half dozen male students come up to me after class separately, and they mustered the courage to ask, what does it mean to be a man? And admittedly, Cliff, the, the first time I got the question, I wasn't prepared to hear that question, so I didn't know exactly where to right. go. But upon reflection, you know, I was thinking, well, what was it like as as a kid? And I just actually, before our call, I finished recording a podcast for my other podcast that's on vulnerability, not weakness. Well, I grew up in an, in a space where vulnerability was weakness, and you know, there's there's this question mark as to whether or not. Uh, you know, it's it's still perceived that way, or if that's actually a component of what it means to be a man in 2023. You know, someone that's that has a high degree of emotional intelligence that is willing to to you know show emo emotion appropriately given you know the context uh, of the situation. So, if you were faced with that question, what does it mean to be a man? How would you answer that in contemporary culture? <laughs> Man, I think that's a crazy question. And the fact that these young people are thinking this way is um, inspiring to me, motivational to me, um, because they're different from us. This generation is just different. And so back to mom and dad, like, 
my dad is still, if you think about it, he's 94 years old, traditional. Like he thinks my wife should be doing certain things and I should be doing certain things. I'm like, dad, you're crazy. But that's just the mentality. And that's how it was back when he grew up in the thirties and forties. And right. That's what the structure was today. I think it's a very different society that we live in um, with openness about almost everything. I mean, we in trouble if you don't say all the right letters, when you say LGBTQ plus, like you get in trouble. But it's and it's not right or wrong. It's just different. It's just a different time frame that we live in. And so, I, I you know, you have girls and I have boys, and raising my boys, that's the same. My dad told me like, don't cry, rub some dirt on it, get up, uh, man up, and all these things to to make them feel like crying was a weakness or showing your emotion was a weakness. Um, and then my younger son came around. And he does all, he wears his emotions on his sleeve. And it was difficult for me as a dad to understand that, that that's who he was and how to embrace that. And so growing up with him, he taught me a lot how to allow him to be him. Uh, and still, right, you know, he's 19. You don't know everything, man. You, you, you think you do, but you don't. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know how I would answer that. You know, it's just a matter of like, I mean, I think a lot of it's situational, number one. But secondly, like, being a man today is not the same as being a man in this 50s, 60s, and 70s where you go to work and your wife's going to be home. Or being a man today is um, doing things that inspire you, doing things that um, motivate you, uplifting others. Um so if you want to have a family, how do you love and support your family? Um, if it's an emotional thing, like how do you, like you said, appropriately show your emotion where it's not degrading from anything that you're working on? Say that, you know, in the context of work, like, yeah, you can be emotional about it. As long as it doesn't degrade the work that we're doing. Okay. Like we'll figure it out. We'll work through it. Um, but I also, I, I, but I, I'm a little old school and crusty when I'm like, I think there's still a line in there. I think it's still acceptable to, to be like, Hey, I know you're having some, some, but let's, let's work it out away from the group or one-on-one, but let's, you know, you still got some things we need to do to accomplish in order to be successful for the family or, you know, your work life or, you know, however you balance that. That's a tough question. The fact that they're asking that's really inspiring to me, but at the same time, because I think we come, we're cut from a different cloth than they are. Uh, and again, not good or bad. I think just different. It's it's interesting you use the word inspiring. Um, I I kind of went the other way with with it, and almost feeling sympathetic for them that, that there's any confusion around the topic. Yeah. But I I definitely I, I definitely see your point. What for? You know, based on you know your your dad's generation, you and I are firmly Gen X, and then your son's generation. I it's probably not a stretch to assert that every culture, based on generational dynamics, believes they're doing the right thing. So, what your dad grew up with, he probably feels is quote right. What we grew up with, probably the same. And then, and then today, what. What do you think are the commonalities 
with going back to the question, what does it mean to be a man? What do you think the commonalities are that serve as a thread through the generations in response to that question? Ooh, Ooh I don't know. Oh, that's a good one. Yes, that's a good one, Ed. Um, man, I think, I think, well, <laughs> without me sounding overly over the top, masculine, like, <laughs> but I think some of it is just, um, and I, I, you know, yeah, I got something run through my head, like, oh, yeah, you wear the pants and, um, uh, <laughs> You know, All sort of the old, right some of the cliches, yeah. Yeah, cliche, yeah. But I want to stay away from those. Uh, yeah. You know, I, th I don't know. I, I don't know what, you know, some of the common threads are. I think it's, you know, I think through my dad and what my kids were, um, I think there's always a part of us that will always have a piece of our parents with us. Um, and, for, and for me, it was, my dad was not only the strictness, but the honesty and treating others the way you want to be treated, despite race, creed, color. Um, and so for, for our family, anyways, that's one of those threads that has, they could tie that back to probably my grandfather's um, in terms of just treating others the way you want to be treated. Um, but in terms of masculine, I don't know. I think that's, again, I think they're all a little bit different. We've all been given pieces of advice or, guidance direction that's a little bit different than mom and dad and you know the generation prior to that that's i don't know if i'm answering that one very well but um i probably have to think a little bit harder on that one what do you think the, that thread is do you have one that's kind of sticks out there are there are two that come to mind right away that seem to connect at least the current generation with our parents generation and that is protector and provider. Well, the let's take the second one first. Provider has been redefined. If for no other reason, economic forces require, in most cases, both parents to work in order to support the family. So what our parents went through, I know I, my dad was the single income earner growing up. And today, both my wife and I work. And our contribution is equally valued both by one another and by our girls. So, but I, I, but there's still the element of needing to be at least a co-provider. In terms of protector, I was in a conversation with a young lady yesterday, and we were actually talking about this. And I asked her, I'm like, when you were eight years old, and imagine someone broke into your house, would would you want a dad or a big brother that is? listless and aimless in life that might not be able to step up and and defend and protect your home and she didn't she didn't blink she's like no way i wouldn't want that and yet we come across so many men particularly young men that almost have been given permission to be listless and aimless it's like if like for you, where whenever you come across, you know those young people, where where do you start with that? Yeah, that's like, yeah, right. Like <laughs> it's I don't know if it was my son or maybe some other young man. We're having a conversation. It's back to you, the protector provider piece, but the chivalry, right? Mm -hmm. Women's elves, chivalry's dead, but you get mad when we open the door for you. But 
then you get mad if we don't open the door for you. Um, and so there's a balance of what the confusion, I could see why some kid be, or young men would be confused when there's uh, confusion sometimes from the opposite sex in their opinion. Um, but with the list of yes, it's funny you say that. I'll uh, I'll share. We've got our my wife's nephews here. Goes to GCU from Colorado here to help out. Uh, and so to be closer to school because now he's going in person versus um, uh, virtually. We're having the challenge too with it's like why aren't you motivated to go and get a job and go provide for yourself? Because we're doing it for you. Um, is it easy versus going out? And, and again, I think that's the old school mentality, but at the same time, it's, why would you not want to go out there and support yourself? And I think it's, you almost have to give, find different ways of motivating these young men under uncertain items. And it's, you know, whether it's dating and being chivalrous versus, getting off your butt in the couch to go uh, get a job. And I think personally, I think one of the things that and you see it in the classroom um, is th there's so many more things to distract a young person now than it was in our day. And so I think the distraction level is so high um, from the phone to the streaming and all the other things that kind of cloud these young folks that it's not as much sit down at the table with dad or mom and learn some of these things that it was back in our day. And I think there's so many different factors. And of course, culturally different factors, um, different parts of the world and whether or not you're um, well off financially or not socioeconomic status. I think there's so many different factors that would kind of play to that. But for me, it's like, you know, you know one thing my wife told her, her niece, cause she was kind of in that same spot and she was looking for a job. She's like, Trust me, once you make your own money, you can take care of yourself like you're love it. And she does. Like she went and got a job and she loves it. It's just a matter of like you look at these young folks like Ooh, I just want to put my hands on them sometimes. But that's just old school <laughs> mark. Like, like I wanna... <laughs> Well so this is an interesting this is an interesting point because every preceding generation looks at the current generation as entitled without the recognition or admission that of who's doing the entitling. So I find that fascinating. And that you couple with what your wife had said about you know, earning your own money. Well, if, if we stop entitling them, if we, if we actually can help expedite and in, in appropriately expedite severing that financial cord, it's, it's liberating. I mean, you and I went through that, that, it's scary where, I mean, there's really technically no safety net once you're, you're, you're no longer financially tethered to your folks and the freedom that comes with it. And one of the things that uh, I, I, I talk about is the family we're born into, those are involuntary relationships. All of the friendships or, or romantic relationships, those are voluntary and until we're no longer financially tethered to our parents, that, that relationship is still involuntary. Now, what I'm not saying is they won't ever not be your parents. They certainly will always be your parents. But once the financial uh, connection is, has been cut, technically those relationships become voluntary. And it, I'm just wondering if we if we can actually do a better job promoting that 
particularly in young men, where that sense of freedom serves as a, a driver and motivator to for them to take new and different action. What's your take on sort of th that whole mindset? Yeah, I'll take a step back before I get there. But, um, you know, I thought about that when you were saying that. I think part of the entitlement piece is depending, again, one of the other factors of depending on where you came from, socioeconomic status, there's always an idea that your family and your kids have a better than you had. And I think that's yeah. where part of that entitlement comes from. But I think there's a way to um, constructively do that so that, the student, your, your, your kid knows that there's a way to still strive for something, strive for that financial freedom, strive to, you know, support themselves. Um, one or two is that Caleb is very much like he wants to do that, um, which is amazing. And so it's, it's that next step. Like if, yeah, I'd love to have more of those. That's a great way of putting it right. That, that voluntary versus involuntary relationship no longer tethered to your parents what what could you do if you're no longer tethered to your parents financially how would you do it how would you do things differently they're so right we, we you and i probably could go back and go and this is some stuff i want to do with my parents is some stuff i don't want to do like there's things for my dad I learned, like i'm never going to do that and i have it because i've learned um because i want to be a father in a certain way and so I think it's a great way of putting it and kind of sharing an idea of that there's, there's opportunity to grow and, and be and do and create blossom. If you have the motivation to go step away from a financial standpoint, again, so many other factors that fall into that. Right. Yeah. Um, Not like, the least of which like is my nephew. The, the, so, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say like my nephew, like they're, they got a family or a family, um, like a convenience store and he can go in there and work and grind it out, but that's not what you wanted to go do and go find the path that's going to make you happy and that you want to go do and, and fill your bucket with the things that you want to do. That's what yeah. I was going to say. My bad. Yeah. And I was just going to add the other side, in addition to help, helping motivate parents to promote, you know, freedom and, and, and independence. So I, I just don't, I can't get myself to a place where it's exclusively the young person's fault. Oh yeah, no, I agree. It's like, yeah, it's definitely. I, I was thinking about it too, right? It's it's so much easier when you say, "Hey, Kubo, same thing in our house. Hey, you've got an hour on the game console that turns into two or three because they're quiet, and we're okay with them being quiet." Versus <laughs> shutting that joker off in an hour, right? And it'd be like, "All right, now we're going outside, or we're gonna go." Oh yeah, you know, if I get another hour and a half quiet, I'm good. Yeah. And I mean, oh my gosh, I, I, I remember, I, I remember thinking under no circumstances will the television become a babysitter or my kid, my kid will eat fruits and vegetables. And boy, I, I, I did too. Well, you just fall down on that commitment because the TV serves as a babysitter and Mac and cheese is the only thing they won't complain about. Right. And you need him to eat something. You need to meet something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So as we sort of get ready to land the plane on this, I, I don't know Jaden, your your youngest son, but 
obviously you and I know this, that I had a chance to you, you know, be the faculty member for Caleb twice. And you've, you and Elise have done an unbelievable job with that young man. And you should absolutely be, I'm sure, I know you're proud of him, but you should be proud of yourselves. It's absolutely impressive uh, just what a thoughtful, conscientious, considerate young man that, that you've raised. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's a good egg. I'll keep him around. You'll keep him around? He'll do in a pinch? He'll do in a pinch. He's trying to get, he's trying to get away from the He's, he's ready, man. I, I tell you what, he's ready to go and he's the motivated one, man. I, I love it. Doing everything right. And, um, he was taking back seat this semester and not, not go to where he was working over at Camelback Ranch last year. They asked him back and he was like, no, I kind of want to have a spring break. He's over there working. Um, so he's doing everything right. He's in, he's in a good spot. The other one, you might have to have some. <laughs> some further conversations with that one <laughs> that's right well may, maybe he's maybe it just it'll take him a little bit longer to cook that's all yeah that's it i was a late bloomer so maybe he's a late bloomer yeah well cliff thank you thank you so much for your wisdom and insights would you mind if i if i prayed us out no please do thank you dear lord jesus thank you so much for having the opportunity to spend time with just a wonderful man, Mark Clifford. He's a, a dear friend of mine and he's just done so many things right in his life and the work he's doing now to help underserved, underrepresented persons of color is extraordinarily noble and awesome. Please continue to watch over him and those that are in support of those efforts Please watch over his family, his sons, Caden and Jaden, as they you know, continue navigating school and get ready to get out in, into the world and make their own mark. I ask these in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, buddy. All right, man. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You're sure welcome. God bless. You can contact the show at it's not my credit to take.com. We'd love to hear from you. God bless. <laughs>